We're going to continue our sermon series in the book of Acts. This is the second of the series. Did you ever have to make up your mind? Pick one and leave the other behind. It's not often easy and not often kind. Did you ever have to finally decide? And say yes to one and let the other one ride. There's so many changes and tears you must hide. Did you ever have to make up your mind? Bruce, you probably recognize where that song came from. Gina, maybe. The rest of you probably have no idea. Tommy, you know. <laughs> it's an old song from 1965 by The Love and Spoonful and John Sebastian. How do you decide? How do you make decisions, minor or major? Yeah, flip a coin. Do you look for signs or omens? Or you, do you use the magic eight ball? Today's passage in Acts is going to help us with some principles about making decisions. Let's look at that passage. It's going to be on the board. And um, I'm going to read it here. Acts 1, 12-26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons in all, about 120, and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called, in their own language, Akedema, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his place. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you bless the reading of your word. God, I pray that today we would have our hearts and our, our eyes and ears open to your word and to what you have to say from, from this passage. 
I pray you guide me from mistakes and errors, and I would proclaim your word clearly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to look back at that, at that passage just to review it a little bit. At the end of Luke, Luke, who is the author of Acts, presents a little bit of different uh, story. He says uh, in Luke um, 24, 50, he says, Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continuing in the temple, blessing God. So this part of Acts is a little bit more specific. It's a little bit finer point of what was taking place when, when the disciples saw Jesus ascend and then they went back to Jerusalem. Now the Mount of Olives, I, I took some interest in this because the Mount of Olives has a special place in Scripture. This is where... The apostles were waiting as Jesus was, was ascended, and they left from there, and they went back to Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives is probably just a kilometer from Jerusalem. There's the east side of Jerusalem drops into the Kindred Valley, and then up on the other side is the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives has a great place in Scripture that's first mentioned by, by um, the writer of Samuel. Samuel tells us that David, when he was being pursued by Absalom, his son, who was trying to usurp the kingdom, went to the Mount of Olives. It's the first mention of the Mount of Olives in Scripture. It says the Mount of Olives where, was where God was worshipped. And I thought that was interesting. We see it again in Zechariah. Zechariah has a prophecy about the Mount of Olives. Now, I tell you, I don't know what that prophecy means. I don't know if it was to be fulfilled at that time, to be fulfilled at the second coming or when. It's just very confusing, but it's mentioned specifically in that passage. And then we have, throughout, throughout the Gospels, Jesus would spend his days in the temple preaching and teaching, and he would lodge at night on the Mount of Olives. We have the triumphal entry at Palm Sunday being staged from the Mount of Olives. They were on the Mount of Olives, and they went into Jerusalem from there, and that had that processional where people yelled, Hosanna. We know that, um, that Jesus was con being confronted by the Jewish leaders and he left and went to the Mount of Olives and he gave the Olivet Discourse showing the disciples and the apostles about times to come. Finally, we have Jesus going to the Mount of Olives and praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Garden of Gethsemane means just olive press. So it's a place in, on the Mount of Olives where they process the olives for olive oil. And he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was betrayed by Judas. Interesting, just Friday, I saw an archaeologic note that they had discovered these ritual baths on the Mount of Olives. And there was no other buildings with these ritual baths. And that was crucial because the Jews would demand that before you ever processed wine, or, or olives for oil, that you would, be, you would take these ritual baths. So it's kind of supporting what took place on the Mount of Olives. I thought that was very interesting. Then we go to the upper room. Now, we think it's the same upper room that they had the Last Supper in, because in the Greek it says the upper room. And then you had, in the upper room, you had the, the apostles. You had Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, 
Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Then you had the women. The women included Mary Magdalene, Mary of Clopas, Susanna, Joanna, Mary, and Martha, Bethany, Lazarus' sisters. And then you had his brothers. There was James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, Jesus' half-brothers. Now, you got to think of who else was in that room. Well, Lazarus was probably there. His sisters were there. Almost certainly there was Justice and Matthias. And then you had to think, well, wait a minute. What about those seven disciples that became deacons in Acts 6? There was Stephen and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus. Those, those seven that became ministers to the people. And then you have that comment that there was 120 people. Now, we don't know if that's referring to 120 people in that upper room. That'd be a pretty big room. How many chairs are in this room? There's about 135 chairs in this room. So it would have to be a fairly sizable room. And then we go on and we talk about this death of Judas. And it's an apparent contradiction from what took place in the Gospels. Matthew 27 tells us about, what, about a different description of the death of Judas. Judas had remorse about taking money for Jesus' treason. And he, threw the, and he gave the money back to the, to the Jewish leaders, the temple leaders. And the temple leaders said, we can't take that money. It's blood money. And Jesus went out and hung himself. In this portion of Acts, we have Judas falling headlong and his guts bursting open, which is kind of cool. But they're probably the same story taken from two very different perspectives. Judas probably did hang himself, and as he's rotting, hanging himself, he would fall off and his guts would burst open. They're probably the same incidents, just two different perspectives. And then we have Peter beginning the process of choosing with the other apostles a replacement for Judas because he believed that it was responsible to have 12 people there. Now, we'll talk a little bit about that. But what we want to explore is this decision-making process and, and how that can help us in our decision-making process. How do we know what God wants us to do? The principle that should govern all our decisions is up there. Make decisions in view of God's plan of redemption. Now, when I read that, I was cut to the quick because how many decisions I make without even thinking about what God's plan is for the redemption of his people. That plan for redemption is spelled out in Acts 1.8, which we talked about last week. But you will receive power in the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I'm going to quote from Tony Morida, who is the author of one of the texts I read about a commentary on Acts. And let me tell you that the outline that you have in your, in your bulletins, I stole from him. I, I, you know, I, I, yeah, I got to admit that. 
Um, if This is a quote from him. If the reason we're still on the planet is to advance God's mission of redeeming people, then it just makes sense that every decision we face must be approached in view of that purpose. You know, the mission statement we talked about two weeks ago here for this church is to lead people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. I was, when I was in college, I was involved with a Christian group called the Navigators, and their, their motto was to know Christ and to make him known. And that is the purpose of our lives. So, the first process... Good. I pointed to Aaron so he can change slides. The first purpose, the first thing we do is we must distinguish between God's revealed will and man's concealed will. Now, we can talk about God's will in multiple different ways, but we're going to simplify talking about his revealed will and his concealed will. His revealed will is before us in our Bibles. Everything written down in that Bible, the black and white, is God's revealed will for us. It contains everything we, we need for our redemption and for how we live as followers of Jesus. So there should be no guessing about whether we should be making disciples, whether we should be praying, whether we should be gathering together as a body of Christ, whether we should live holy lives, bear fruit, love the unlovable, be faithful in our marriages, care for widows and orphans. Those are plainly spelled out for us, and there's no question that that's God's will for us. When Jesus confronted the Sanhedrin in, in Matthew 22. Sanhedrin was the Jewish leaders, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees together. And this is what he said in, in 22:34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In John, he says, whoever, in John 14, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 15, 12 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Those things are written in Scripture. Those are God's will for our lives. There's no question about those things. You don't have to question any of that. It's stated perfectly. Now, how that works out in our lives, how that happens and how we do those things is variable for different individuals. This is what we call the concealed will of God. For instance, we know that we're to work. The Bible states that we're to be profitable, we're supposed to work, but what job are we supposed to do? That's part of that concealed will of God. We know that marriage has been sanctioned by God, but we don't know if we're to be married ourselves or who we're to be married to. Those are the part of that concealed will. In this section in Acts, the apostles knew that they needed to find a replacement for the traitor. But they didn't know who that was. The Bible clearly said, you need a replacement. It took that from Psalms. 
but didn't tell them who it was. Sometimes we take pieces of the Bible out of context and we try to make them God's revealed will for us. And that's just an example. Up on Highway 71 near Mount Gaylor, there was a church. And the church that actually interviewed the pastor of that church. And he said that he was reading scripture that said, go to the mountain and build a church. Well, it was referring to the Israelites and not to him. But he took that piece of scripture out of that piece of scripture out of context and used it saying this was God's revealed will for his life. And that's an error. That's in, inappropriately interpreting scripture. Now, he could have said we need a church up there because there wasn't a church. There's people there who need to be evangelized. This is God's will. It's a different reason, but to use scripture wrongly when it's not appropriate like that is an error. We start with what God's revealed will is for us. Now, I'll tell you, a major problem we have as Christians today, me including everybody else, is we spend most of our time trying to figure out what God's concealed will is for us and ignoring God's revealed will. We, we pontificate and we make all kinds of, we use effort and all these things to find out what God wants us to do when the things he wants us to do, his revealed will, we tend to ignore. Our salvation is in no way related to obeying the law. But you know, our lives as Christians is followers of Christ or to obey the Ten Commandments, for instance. But we tend to ignore that, thinking that we need to, to find out this concealed will. R.C. Sproul, a few years back before he died, thought that the greatest threat to American Christianity was lawlessness or antinomianism. It's just thinking the law has no benefit on our lives. You know, Jesus dealt with this in Matthew with a very troubling statement. It's troubling for me. He says in Matthew 7, 20 to 23, Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? But then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What a, what a statement. Cuts to the quick. We need to trust the Bible as our authority. You know, the Bible's objective, but our senses of discernment and judgment can be very subjective. In fact, our feelings and, and desires are, are corrupt because of our sinful nature. So, um, we know this verse is quoted often in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick, who can understand it? For example, church attendance. The Ten Commandments say, keep the Sabbath day holy. The New Testament says, get together with the body of believers. Build one another up. Encourage one another in this body. But what we do is we'll say, well, our hearts will tell us, well, it's okay if I miss. 
maybe I need to go camping or, or fishing or play golf or, or maybe I just need to sleep in because it's been a tough week. The Bible's clear. The reveal of the world of God is you get together with the body of believers. Now, this is not to be legalistic, but this is to be obedient followers of Jesus. And we let other things get in the way. Revealed will, the Bible states this. This is what the Bible says. We should do what it says. In, in this portion of Acts, the apostles demonstrated a confidence and an allegiance in the word of God. Peter quoted from Psalms regarding the supplacement of Judas. They were going to do it. There was no question because the Bible said it. Let the Bible interpret your life. This is a little bit tricky. The apostles were facing a difficult time. One of their members, one of their 12, who was, it said, had a portion of the ministry, was deeply involved, had been with Jesus all this time, from, from the baptism to the ascent, to the, well, almost the ascension. And he, and he bailed on them. How were they to interpret this? It had to bother them. We look at other things in the Christian life. Recently, Robbie Zacharias, a great apologist for Christ, found out that he had this, these sexual sins that had plagued him. We see young people dying before their time from our perspective. We see COVID having rampages in our society with some members and some of our friends. How do we make sense of this? How do we interpret these things that affect our lives in view of the Bible and realize that God is in control and God is good and God is love no matter what we see going around us. We don't necessarily understand those things, but that doesn't change how we feel because we trust who God is. We let that interpret how we live. And we know, for instance, that man is sinful. That these Christian, these Christian celebrities who falter, they're no different than us. They have a sin nature. So we know that because the Bible tells us. That. God is good and God is sovereign. Even if we don't understand these things at the present time. Next is do what the Bible says. God wants us to give first priority and attention to what is revealed to us. James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Peter said to the apostles, we needed, we needed 12. They were going to do what it says. God made it clear that there were to be 12 apostles. You think about this. Where did God make it clear? In Matthew, Jesus told him that the 12 apostles would, dwell, dwell, would judge the 12 tribes of Israel. We know the revelations that the 12 apostles are going to have thrones of themselves. Scripture clearly will state there need to be 12. Now, there are several other reasons why there had to be 12. 12 was the fulfillment of, of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. So they were going to go about doing that job. They were going to do what God said. We need to look 
for God's concealed will for our lives through God's revealed will. God's word in our place and his unfolding mission should shape our decision making. So, we know that we're to be part of a church. Doesn't say what part of a church. We don't say what church it is, but we're to be part of a church. But God's revealed will is that we carry on that plan of redemption. So, the church we should be part of is one that carries on the plan of redemption. So you're not going to be part of a church that doesn't do that. What home are you to buy? Well, think of that. God's revealed will. Is this home going to let me be or let me participate are we used for that plan of redemption, which God says? Who am I to marry? Well, the Bible says you should marry somebody who's, of the, who's a Christian. If you're a Christian, you should marry a Christian. It doesn't tell which Christian you're to marry, but the first qualification is that they are Christian. What job you're to do? So, when I was finishing college, I was involved in this Christian ministry, and, and I, I, um, at, when I finished college, I didn't know if God wanted me to be part of the Christian ministry we were involved in or go to medical school. I didn't know. So I stayed out an extra year to try and find that. When I was finishing my time in the public health service in Montana, I said, okay, I know I should be involved in a ministry that that promotes that, that plan of redemption. So should I be a general practitioner? Or should I, my desire at that time would be to be a neurologist. How can I best accomplish that job? And I, I said, well, you know, if I want to go to the mission field, the best thing to do would be a surgeon. But I hate surgery. So what do you do? That leads us to the next thing. How do we determine what God wants us to do after we, in view of God's revealed will for us. Number one is you do what the apostles did. You gather all the information. So, they were going to choose a replacement for Judas. What were the requirements? The requirements were somebody who was with them from the baptism of John to the ascension. One of the disciples that was hanging around with him that whole period of time. And they boil that down to the two folks. Matthias and Justice. They did their homework. They boiled it down to those two options. They, reviewed, they gathered the information. And then what did they do next? They prayed. They prayed and asked God what he would have them do and help them choose the, rest, the best one. You know... We can be deceived. So if you leave it up to us, we can make decisions on the wrong basis. 1 Samuel 16, 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on his heart. These guys could have picked the guy who was very popular, good-looking, 
uh, had a lot of money. There could be a lot of other qualifications from the outside. But God looks at the heart. Take the building of our new church. Look at our congregation. Our congregation is small. It is a bold move to say that God wants us to build that building over there. But we believe through prayer, this is God, what God wants us to do. So we seek God in prayer. We pray about it. We get the information. We pray about it. And then we make a decision and do it. You're not going to get a sign that says, do this. You're not going to get that. And if people tell you they did, they're liars. <laughs> we trust in God's sovereignty. God is in control. The apostles who met, they decided who met the qualifications. They prayed and they cast lots. Total arbitrary thing. But we know that God was in control of the lots. Proverbs 16.3 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. By the way, this is not promotion to be casting lots. This is the last time that casting lots is ever mentioned in Scripture. And why is that? Well, pretty soon, we're going to have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to be given. This is not. This is before Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's been given. There's no need to be casting lots or flipping coins or looking at your eight ball or whatever. <sighs> Augustine, uh, the famous church father from the fourth century, is quoted as having said, Love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. Love God and do what you please. Now, did he really say that? <laughs> well, there's a, there's a debate. The first part certainly is, is from his, his homily on 1 John 4. And this is how it goes. Once and for all then, a short precept is given thee. Love and do what thou wilt. Whether thou hold thy peace through love, hold thy peace. Whether thou cry out through love, cry out. Whether thou correct, through love, correct. Whether thou spare, through love, do thou spare. Let the root of love be within. Of this root can nothing spring but what is good. We would like it to say, God loves me so I can do whatever I want. That's how we would like it to say. But that is that lawlessness. Paul deals with that very specifically in Galatians. In Galatians 5, it says, But you were called to freedom. Brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other keep you from doing the things you want. For if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. But the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, immorality impurity, 
sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When we, number one, understand our role in the unfolding drama of redemption, have a grasp of God's revealed will, had I have identified the necessary information in order to narrow our options, have prayed to the Lord about the situation, then simply trust Him and do it. Learn to trust the Father's love for us. Learn to trust God's sovereignty. Make decisions in view of God's plan of redemption. Let's pray.